Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. If I had to show someone the lasting simplicity and elegance of a one megabyte black and white Macintosh, I'd show them System 6 with Claris Works, a very capable word processor, spreadsheet, database, drawing, paint, and telecommunications package that ran in one megabyte of memory. Prior to Claris Works' arrival, the reigning champion was Microsoft Works 2.0. Both programs were relatively fast and bug-free, but ClarisWorks sported a highly polished Macintosh-like user interface and could even cope with reasonably sophisticated page layout tasks. You could also drop, say, a spreadsheet frame into the middle of your word processing document, or vice versa. And it all ran in one megabyte. Unlike Works, it also had a bitmap graphics module, no doubt borrowed from Mac Paint, and its object and vector-oriented drawing module, borrowed from MacDraw, ran rings around Works. Microsoft Works 3.0 tried to catch up with Claris Works, but if I sat you down in front of a low-cost, 16-bit datapath Macintosh, like the LC, running Works 3.0, you would laugh at how incredibly slowly it ran. It's no wonder Claris Works won so many hearts. A little about Bob Hearn from his biography at gatheringforgardener.org. Bob Hearn was raised on Martin Gardner books and Scientific American articles. This developed into a lifelong interest in mathematics and puzzles, leading to a Ph.D. at MIT and a resulting book, Games, Puzzles, and Computation with Eric Domain. Bob's other passion is running ultramarathons, he currently holds five American records for over age 50. A Brief History of Claris Works, as seen by Bob Hearn, January 2004. This is my little tale of adventure in Silicon Valley. Claris Works was one of the most popular Macintosh programs of all time, and at one point had over 20 million active users. Despite Claris Works taking on the name AppleWorks after Steve Jobs returned to Apple in 1997, this history has no relation to the text-based product called AppleWorks. For the Apple II. Prehistory Styleware. It all started with a little software company in Houston called Styleware, run by Kevin Harvey. Styleware made Apple II software, including titles like Multiscribe. In 1986, Apple introduced what looked to be an interesting new computer, the Apple II GS, an Apple II that acted like a Mac. Styleware hired a bunch of computer science students from Rice University to write software for this new machine. Among them were myself, Jeff Erickson, Scott Holdaway, Scott Lindsay, Tom Hoke, Mike Hibbets, and Sid Polk. This was a natural job for me. I had been an Apple enthusiast and programmer since 1977 when I got my first Apple II. Jeff and I wrote TopDraw, which was similar to MacDraw. Originally to be called ColorDraw, TopDraw was the first color-object-oriented drawing program for a Macintosh-style graphical user interface. The Macintosh 2 had not yet arrived. Macs were black and white. Our main programming effort at Styleware became an integrated application for the 2GS, 
to be called GSWorks. It would contain word processing, graphics, spreadsheet, and other capabilities. This turned out to be a very difficult undertaking. The 2GS was not really powerful enough to support its color graphical user interface, and GSWorks was a very large and complicated program. The Macintosh was an 8 MHz machine with a 1-bit black-and-white display. The 2GS was a 2.8 MHz machine with a 2- or 4-bit color display. Furthermore, at that time, application software for the 2GS had to be written in assembly language, adding to the complexity of the task. Claris, Part 1 Meanwhile, Apple had formed a software subsidiary named Claris to develop and market application software. Initially, Claris sold MacWrite, MacPaint, and MacDraw for the Macintosh and AppleWorks for the Apple II. The original plan was that Claris would become completely independent from Apple someday and go public, but that never happened. Naturally, Claris was interested in this forthcoming AppleWorks-like program for the 2GS. In 1988, Claris bought Styleware, moved the development team to its offices in Santa Clara, and rechristened GSWorks as AppleWorks GS. By this time, I was already living in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'd moved out in 1987 to be with my fiancée, Liz Harding, who was in grad school at Berkeley. By late 1988, AppleWorks GS was ready to ship. More to the point, ready or not, it was shipped. The plan had been to reorganize the Styleware team around a project to write an integrated application for the Macintosh. This would compete against Microsoft Works, a daunting prospect even in 1988. Apparently, Claris decided it was too daunting. After we finished AppleWorks GS, the plan was changed and the Styleware programmers were distributed throughout the other Mac projects. Scott Holdaway wound up on the MacWrite 2 team and I was placed on the team responsible for MacDraw 2. Despite the change of plans, Claris was still a great place to be. It had inherited some Apple culture, and there was a strong sense that we were creating the best, cleanest software out there. Years later, I realized that this feeling had led to a certain blindness to the pace at which the rest of the industry was moving. In its effort to produce slick, bug-free software, Claris ignored the hard reality that having a sheer number of features sells, independent of elegance of design. Some products, such as MacWrite Pro, were so greatly delayed by stringent quality assurance requirements that they lost their effectiveness in the market. Around April 1989, Scott Holdaway and I decided that our jobs were not what we'd had in mind when we joined Claris. We wanted to write new software, not maintain old software. So we left Claris to form our own company, Spartacus Software, which would create an integrated package for the Mac. Almost everyone at Claris told us we were crazy. How could two programmers on their own compete against Microsoft? The one exception was Yogan Dalal, VP of Engineering at Claris. He thought we had a good chance. Claris gave us some equipment in return for the right of first refusal if we wound up selling our company. This turned out to be a great deal for Claris. 
Spartacus' seed capital amounted to about $10,000. I remember picking up our computers from the Apple dealer like it was yesterday. It was incredibly exciting. The two of us were about to take on Microsoft, and we knew we could do it. On our own. Scott and I had made a little money from the styleware sale, and my, by then, wife Liz had a job as a geologist, so we could last for a while on our own. For the first couple of months, we had our computers, 16 megahertz Macintosh 2Xs, set up on card tables in the dining room of Scott's apartment. This is where Claris Works was born. We eventually wanted the program to be sold as MacWorks, but early versions were called BSWorks for Bob and Scott. We rented a house together in Santa Clara to save money and turned it into Spartacus headquarters. Things went well for the first several months, and we settled on a very nice overall architecture for the program. All integrated software to date had effectively been several separate programs loosely stitched together. For several reasons, we had to do better than that. Our first reason was our desire to do something new and interesting. Second, two programmers cannot write a competitive standalone word processor spreadsheet graphics and database program in the space of about a year. Third, application size was a big deal in those days. Microsoft Works was a big program. We wanted to do better. We came up with a frame-based approach. Most of the functionality, particular to the various application types, was packaged up into frames. Word processing frames, graphics frames, and so on. These frames were then used as building blocks to make documents in a unified programming framework. For example, a word processing document was essentially a bunch of text frames, one per page, linked together. Doing this neatly was a big challenge. Many subsequent efforts at building a component-based architecture, like Apple's OpenDoc, have failed to take into account the top-level user interface. In the end, not only was most of the code shared across different types of documents, but the application was also truly integrated. The frames could be embedded within one another, so you could plop a spreadsheet frame right into a word processing document. Text objects within a graphics document had a full-featured word processing engine behind them. The database form editor used the built-in graphics environment, and so on. One cool related thing was our shared graphical context mechanism. Sometimes, objects wound up being displayed in multiple frames at the same time, like a graphic enlarged to the point of spanning more than one page. We developed a general architecture for displaying actions live in multiple contexts. Of course, a lot of these ideas are old hat today, but it was new and exciting in 1989. Some creative programming was required to accomplish these things efficiently on the common hardware of that era. There were some cool features that didn't make it into the shipping product. For example, spreadsheet formulas were originally much more powerful. You could relate things like graphical object positions and document properties to spreadsheet cells. This way, you could have the result of a calculation move objects around graphically, or vice versa. 
Further work in this direction led to a novel constraint-based programming paradigm called Moose, which I may resurrect someday. Our work was interrupted in October by the Loma Prieta earthquake. This was the magnitude 7.1 quake that interrupted the World Series. Having lived in the Bay Area for a few years, I'd been through several quakes, but nothing had prepared me for this one. I was sure the house was going to collapse. But of course, it didn't. By November, we had made great progress. All the document types were more or less functional. Scott had done most of the word processing code, while I had finished the graphics, along with everything else we'd both had a hand in. There was a lot of work left to be done, but we figured it was time to start shopping the program around. We didn't want to be unemployed forever. All along, Scott and I wanted to take the program back to Claris and finish it with our friends from Styleware. We gave the Claris executives a demo, and they were impressed. Around that time, Claris decided that it really did make sense to be in the Macintosh integrated software market after all. Their plan was to buy either us or a competing effort called SmartWorks by Leonard Development Group of Jacksonville, Florida, says Wikipedia. Symantec acquired the product in 1991 and renamed it GreatWorks. Check the show notes for a video demonstration. Claris preferred our program, but when it came time to talk numbers, things didn't work out. Claris said, we'll give you X. We had had in mind something closer to 6X. Maybe we were greedy. X wasn't bad for less than a year of work. But we had written it. It was ours and we thought it was worth a lot more. Of course, Claris had first rights of refusal, meaning they had the right to match any other offer, so they had nothing to lose by letting us shop it elsewhere. Sidebar. The following is a letter we sent to Steve Jobs at Next in January 1990. From Spartacus Software of Santa Clara, California. To Stephen Jobs. President, Next Incorporated, Redwood City, California. Dear Mr. Jobs, We are offering for sale an integrated package for the Macintosh. The program integrates word processing, spreadsheet, database, and graphics. The primary markets for this software are education and first-time buyers. The upcoming low-cost Macintosh is a major consideration. Obviously, Next is not in the business of marketing Macintosh software. The result we have in mind is similar to what happened with Right Now. The distribution rights could be licensed to TMaker while the code is ported to the Next machine. The proposal we are offering is the acquisition of our code and our development team for a sum and or royalties to be negotiated. The program is now approximately four months away from Alpha. In comparison to Microsoft Works, our program is cleaner, simpler, more powerful, more integrated, and requires less disk space and memory. If you wish to see a demonstration, please call or write us at the above address. We will provide you with a non-disclosure agreement before the demo. Please consider this letter strictly confidential. Sincerely, Robert A. Hearn, Senior Partner. We were a little unclear on the relationship between TMaker, right now, and next. MFR historical context, 
TeaMaker was founded by Peter and Heidi Roizen. Heidi was a longtime friend of Steve Jobs, according to Alan Deutschman's The Second Coming of Steve Jobs. So make what you will of that. We did finally receive a call from Next about a year later, long after we had sold the program to Claris. Ironically, Steve Jobs ultimately wound up owning Claris Works anyway. After he returned to Apple, he brought Claris Works from Claris to Apple and renamed it AppleWorks. We tried. However, there are things called proper channels, and we didn't have them. We also sent letters to Aldous, Ashton Tate, and others. Offering the program to Microsoft is something we would never have done. Without exception, nobody returned our letters or our repeated calls. We had a great program, and we knew it, but we had no way to get it out into the world. We didn't have the resources to produce and market it ourselves. We were a bit clueless. There were, no doubt, plenty of venture capital opportunities and agents available who did have the connections to get us in the door at the big software companies, but this was before the time of SiliconValley.com culture. Eventually, we found what we needed, but for a tense few months, the future looked bleak. The winds had changed again at Claris, and they were no longer sure they wanted an integrated application. Nerves frayed. Somehow, we managed to keep the effort going and didn't tear each other's throats out. One day, we got a call from Kyle Mashima, who had been a marketing executive at Claris when we worked there. He knew about us and had left Claris to join a venture capital firm. He arranged a demo of Claris Works for Guy Kawasaki, former Apple evangelist and ex-president of Asius. Guy watched the demo at our place and loved it. He said, why don't you guys move into my office in Palo Alto? I'll move into my wife's office across the hall. This was way too cool. Everybody knew who Guy Kawasaki was. We had read in the San Jose Mercury News a couple of months earlier that he had left Asius, and there was rampant speculation on where he would go next. We had joked that we should get him to be the president of Spartacus. Now, that was a distinct possibility. But there were other options to consider. In the meantime, Kyle had agreed to act as our agent in offering Claris Works to other companies. The next couple of months were a whirlwind of demos and development crunch time. We did indeed move into Guy's office rent-free, and he moved out across the hall. He left up his Porsche posters to help keep us motivated. At the same time we were looking for buyers, we were scoping out the possible structures for our own company that would actually produce and market our program, with Guy as president and Kyle as VP of marketing. This was an exciting time, a complete turnaround from the recent depths of despair. We were living every Mac hacker's dream. It would have been a great adventure to start the company with Guy and Kyle, but in the end, Competitive offers made Claris sit up and take notice. Claris wound up offering us everything we'd wanted and more. We couldn't refuse. This was our chance to rejoin the Styleware crew and have the Claris stamp of quality on our work. Guy and Kyle weren't left out in the cold either. They received an agent's fee. Guy now runs Garage Technology Ventures, 
and Kyle is now VP of Strategic Development at Adobe. I'll always wonder how it would have turned out had we taken the other course. In July 1990, we sold our program to Claris. Claris, Part 2 Pink Floyd's Money was playing on the radio as we drove to the Claris campus on the Friday that we signed a letter of intent with Claris. The following Monday, we were back at work. Since we had left, Claris had moved into spiffy new corporate headquarters, known as The Wedge because of its shape. I suppose when you get right down to it, The Wedge was Dilbert land on the inside, but it still seemed pretty cool to us. After all, it had an atrium. Things were great, but there were still a few speed bumps before we could ship. As mentioned above, Claris never went public, and right after Claris bought Spartacus, Apple decided to keep Claris as a permanent subsidiary. This was not in line with the expectations of the executive staff at Claris. Shortly after we arrived, Claris' president resigned. Over the next year, most of the executive staff also left. The general turmoil complicated everything within the company. We were joined by styleware programmers Tom Hoke and Scott Lindsay in our effort to finish the product, now codenamed Terminator, because that's what we were going to do to Microsoft Works. Mate Gross, who had been a tester for AppleWorks GS, headed up the Terminator test team. On the marketing side, Bob Lisbon joined as product manager. Clarisworks would not have become the product it did without the hard work of these and many other talented people at Claris. At this point in time, the final product name was yet to be decided. In line with MacWrite and MacDraw, we wanted our program to be called MacWorks. But that name belonged to the Macintosh emulation environment for the Apple Lisa, the ancestor of the Mac. Claris also wanted to avoid the Mac prefixes as Windows versions of our products became a possibility. For a while, Fireworks was the leading candidate, but that name was owned by someone who wrote Fire Station Management Software, and he was unwilling to part with the name. Revolution was also considered, but in the end, Clarisworks was chosen more by default than anything else. After the sale of our program to Claris, it took another year and a half to finish it. This was far longer than we had planned. Some of this was due to new features, some to Claris' stringent quality assurance. Some of the delay was simply misestimation of the amount of work required. Suffice it to say that we worked long and hard. Towards the end of this period, it became critical that we shipped the product. We weren't the only ones trying to shoot down Microsoft Works. Our competition included SmartWorks, the program Claris didn't buy, and BeagleWorks. SmartWorks had been relabeled GreatWorks and acquired by Symantec, who had also been very interested in Spartacus. BeagleWorks was another integrated product put out by Beagle Brothers. All three were due around the same time with the intention of riding the wave of Apple's new lower-cost Macintosh Classic, LC, and 2SI. These machines were aimed at education, a big part of our target market. The lower-cost Macs shipped in configurations with only one megabyte of RAM, 
so achieving acceptable performance on these models was a major technical requirement for the project. Finally, ClarisWorks 1.0 was certified Golden Master in October of 1991 and began shipping to the public. Initial reviews were positive, and sales began to take off. Liz and I celebrated with a trip to Hawaii, where I was thrilled to see ClarisWorks on the shelves in computer stores. ClarisWorks quickly surpassed Microsoft Works in sales and popularity. Early in 1992, Microsoft shipped a new version of Microsoft Works with the claim, Best-Selling Integrated Application for the Macintosh, on the box. Claris Legal forced them to remove this inaccurate text. In response, Microsoft objected that Claris sales numbers were based on copies of Claris Works bundled with Macs. But in fact, retail sales were also better than Microsoft's in number and in revenue. For once, Microsoft had been beaten in a software marketplace in a category in which it had been dominant. By this time, development of ClarisWorks 2.0 was already well underway. Section 5. Oregon After ClarisWorks 1.0 shipped, Liz and I moved to Portland, Oregon. Liz had grown up nearby, and each time we visited her family there, we loved it so much that it became harder to leave after each visit. We also wanted a break from the crowds and high prices of Silicon Valley. We had a dream that Claris would relocate the entire development team to Portland. The other team members were amenable, but I was under no illusions that Claris would see fit to open an office in Portland. However, when it came time to negotiate the terms of the contract for ClarisWorks 2.0, Scott put his foot down. No Portland office, no contract. Claris gave in. In the end, we had to settle for Vancouver, Washington, which is just across the Columbia River from Portland. Liz and I bought a house there, the whole development crew moved to Vancouver, and ClarisWorks 2.0 started to take shape. In due course, we finished ClarisWorks 2.0. Sales were still strong, and ClarisWorks was winning lots of awards. At least according to one Claris marketing presentation I saw, ClarisWorks was outselling Microsoft Office, though presumably by units and not revenue. Microsoft Office was just south of $1,000 at the time. For a couple of years, ClarisWorks was a $100 million product. Now it was time to think about version 3. But by this time, the downside of moving to Portland was becoming apparent. Claris management had continued to turn over, and Scott and I no longer had any close ties with the latest management team. By isolating ourselves, we had freed ourselves from a lot of the daily hassles we'd had in Santa Clara. This let us focus on programming, but losing contact was too high a price to pay both for the development team as a whole and at a personal level for Scott and I. We had a hard time negotiating the contract for ClarisWorks 3, and development was not particularly smooth. Claris needed a new version on the market before all the features were ready, and shipped a version with a small number of feature upgrades as 3.0, against Scott's wishes as well as mine. The feature set we had agreed to eventually shipped as ClarisWorks 4.0.
Macworld August 1995 reports that for a retail price of 130 US dollars, Claris Works 4 would offer the following new features. A clipart library, a palette for storing graphics and text clippings, interactive assistance for creating mailing labels, certificates, and home finance spreadsheets, multiple headers and footers, and the ability to divide a document into sections. The database module gained the ability to save searches and sorts as custom reports, a spreadsheet-like list view, and several new field types, a value list for predefining choices, radio buttons, checkboxes, and pop-up menus. By the time Claris Works 4.0 shipped, Claris' vision of the future of the product was too different from mine for me to continue working on it. One of Claris' requirements was integration with OpenDoc, which necessitated a massive restructuring of the program. OpenDoc was designed to tackle a lot of the same problems that ClarisWorks tackled. Each project had its own ideas and metaphors for component integration and interface, and the two directions weren't particularly complementary. I left after ClarisWorks 4.0 to pursue other interests, while Scott and the rest of the development team stayed on. Before ClarisWorks 5.0 was finished, the rift between Claris and the remaining development team had become too wide. Scott Holdaway, Tom Hoke, Scott Lindsay, Bruce Hammond, and Carl Grice left Claris to form what would later become GoBee Software. These were the core engineers, the ones who had been with the project the longest. Several newer engineers remained. Three in particular were responsible for OpenDoc integration. At Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference 1996, they demoed a version of ClarisWorks with OpenDoc support. Apple was particularly eager to demonstrate to developers that a flagship product was supporting the new component technology. Ergo, everyone else should, too. Not surprisingly, to me anyway, the following week, the three engineers were recruited by Microsoft. Result? No OpenDoc support in ClarisWorks 5.0. That maneuver is just one typical example of the way Microsoft stifles competition. Ironically, in this case, it hit a product conceived in defiance of the Microsoft way. Section 6. Wither ClarisWorks? In January 1998, Claris Corporation ceased to exist. ClarisWorks was brought directly into Apple and renamed AppleWorks. What had been Claris became FileMaker Incorporated. In March of 2000, Apple released AppleWorks 6.0. Steve Jobs speaking at Macworld San Francisco, January 2000. Another thing, AppleWorks 6 we're announcing. AppleWorks 6 has got over 100 new features. It's shipping next month. It's not free. It's $79, but it's pretty good. It also sports a whole new user interface, and it's got presentations in it now as well. This is the number one selling productivity application package for education. It's been thoroughly updated. Go check it out. It's pretty cool. This was widely perceived as a very minor update that brought about several problems, like the removal of several file translators. Meanwhile, the guys at Gobi Software, whom I had since joined, were working on Gobi Productive. 
this product was the next logical step beyond Clarisworks, with a more open architecture written for the BOS. When Gobi was founded in late 1996, there was widespread speculation that Apple would buy B, and that BOS would become the basis of the next Macintosh operating system. Thus, Gobi would have a leg up on development for the new platform. However, Apple surprised everyone by buying Next instead of B. Next Step became the basis for macOS X, and the writing was on the wall for B, although most of us refused to read it. BOS did not survive in the marketplace. Thus, neither did Gobi. Over the past few years, there have been rumors and speculation that Apple was working with, or reacquired, Gobi or the original Clarisworks team to produce a new Mac version of AppleWorks based on Gobi Productive. Apple and Gobi did indeed hold discussions over the course of Gobi's history, however, I am not at liberty to go into details. In the end, Apple did not acquire Gobi, but three of its founders, Scott Holdaway, Scott Lindsay, and Carl Grice, did rejoin Apple as employees when Gobi failed. They won't tell me what they're up to, even off the record, but whatever it is, it does not involve the Gobi productive codebase, nor, I am reasonably sure, does it involve the Clarisworks code. And of course we know now, they were working on what became pages and numbers. As for myself, I went back to graduate school to study artificial intelligence at the MIT AI Lab. Ironically, although I dragged the team to Oregon, and I was always the most die-hard Apple enthusiast of the bunch, I am now the one who has left both Oregon and Apple. I miss them both. I'm depressed at the lack of progress AppleWorks has made over the past few years, though I still use it on a daily basis. I wish I had found a way to keep it moving forward. I also wish there were an alternative that encompassed the simplicity and tight integration that we spent so much effort crafting into Clarisworks. I can think of nothing I would rather do than help create a modern version of Clarisworks, except finish my thesis. Here's hoping others can carry the torch forward. Author's note. Those who are excessively nosy, or observant, might have noticed that the four-letter file creator code for Clarisworks is BOBO. Why BOBO? This is related to TopDraw. When Jeff and I sat down to spec out TopDraw, we played around a lot with MacDraw. One excessively silly creation, aided by my wife Liz, was my dog Bobo. Alas, Bobo has been lost in the depths of time, but he lives on in every Clarisworks file. You can contact me and find more stories at www.macfolkloreradio.com. I appreciate your reviews on iTunes.